Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Sixth Sense starring Bruce Willis, Tony Collette, Olivia Williams, and Haley Joel Osment. Written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Hey, we haven't done one of his films before. Mm. In fact, this is a first for Rice Smile Films, actually. (laughs) We haven't done one, not two, not three, not four. This is number five talking about Mr. Shyamalan. So, welcome to the Five Timers Club. Yeah, you get a gold jacket whenever you come visit us. Do we need to bring John Goodman from SNL Days and sit him right here next to us? Yeah, I think we might, yeah. So... Excellent. Welcome back to Rye Smile Film. It's time to close yet another film review cast. This one, the Summer Box Office Hall of Fame Part 3. Uh, talking about from 19... The storied year of 1999 in film. A lot of huge and important film releases this year. But this was the one that brought the world Mr. M. Night Shyamalan. So I think we're going to get a lot into that. Uh, we joked last week with the over-under... How many times is Hitchcock and uh, Orson Welles going to get brought up here? I think we might break that, but (laughs) I'm looking forward for this conversation. I think we got a lot to talk about here, and I'm really looking forward to this flight question. But first, as we do, we polished off the rest of the Calumet Farms last week, so brought out another bottle. This is the Balcones Texas Rye 100 Proof. Now we've done, you and I have done, probably about four different styles of balconies on the show. It's a, it's a pretty solid uh, little little di- uh, distributor there. So to you, cheers. Cheers, Jesse. Good job on this one. Mm. Mm-hmm. 100 proof. That's a good rye. It's smooth at first, but then it's like, is this a rye? And then it hits you in the back. You're like, yeah, that's a rye. I taste tobacco. That's what I was going to say. Does rye really resonate with the wheat tobacco feel compared to the bourbon for you the way it does me i get tobacco a lot in this one specifically to the point where i was like i should be smoking a cigar while i'm drinking this like i can mm. taste those kind of like scents there i think that should be on board for maybe that's the seventh sense <laughs> <laughs> i think this is episode 170 if my math is right with the patreon so yeah we're, we're, clo- we're teetering in that range once we hit two zero zero then i think that's Another nice bottle, and maybe we'll bust out the cigars. There you go. That's kind of a big number, isn't that, it? It's a huge number. <laughs> like 170 is a big number. Yeah. 170. Yeah, that's a lot of episodes. <laughs> it's a lot of rants and films and getting uh, upset and getting excited about some films. So to that, let's, to that. let's dive right in uh, to our flight question. Excellent. I'm really excited. Go ahead and hit us with it. Inspired by this film, possibly. Mm -hmm. Then let's take the same principle and go forward. This is subjective. So I'm going to use the word masterpiece subjectively. Sure. Yeah. But weakest, did I say three? Mm -hmm. Three weakest follow-ups to a director's previous masterpiece. This is great. I love this. This is a big list, huh? Yeah, I don't think mine are in any particular order because then I'd have to determine what was the worst of the worst. So I just kind of just picked three directors and kind of just went, 
this is the masterpiece, and then this was the, <laughs> the not-so-great follow-up. All righty, let's start. Can I go first? Of course you can. Okay. I can't wait until we do this film one day because I'm going to give a very convincing argument on why I think this is this director's definitive masterpiece on top of some other great films that he's done. Director's Mr. David Fincher. The film is Zodiac, and what he followed that up with was The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Oh, <laughs> terrific choice. Oh, terrific choice. Benjamin Button had just Oscar bait written all over it, and it's just, it's so long, so boring, technologically brilliant, great performance by Brad Pitt, but there is no rewatchability with that film whatsoever. And to go from a film that was Zodiac that is so meticulous in its detail and its investigation of that true crime event that no one saw in the theater, that movie was a colossal bomb when it came out, to then follow that up with this critically, allegedly critically appreciated film Ugh, it was just, I, I tried to line up other, because I kind of like the game after seven, and, you know, even this after the social network, you have a dragon tattoo, and I like that one, too, so this was the stinker in the, that filmography for me. Yeah, that's a terrible film. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, that is really masterfully handled mm-hmm. garbage. Yeah. That uh, character, Mr. Benjamin Button, is so frustrating to mm-hmm. me, and the decisions he makes in that film, <laughs> Yeah. Good choice. Okay, number three. Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to go back to 1978 to set up what the masterpiece was. And I really do think in the annals of film, this is a masterpiece. Okay. I wonder if we both have this one. The masterpiece would be Deer Hunter. Mm. Oof. Oof. You know what's coming. I didn't even consider this guy, but. So Michael Cimino, his follow-up. I think the Deer Hunter is a good movie. Damn right. Yeah, yeah is a movie called Heaven's Gate. All three and a half hours of it. <laughs> 1980, Chris Christopherson and, oh, does it even matter, Christopher Walken? Yeah. Western? Jeff, yeah. Not about the religious cult. That could have been interesting. Yeah. This is a pedantic, yeah, <laughs> pedestrian. A Heaven's, a Heaven's Gate movie, a, a real one, would have been much more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this movie was made for I think around five million. It recouped probably more actually. Actually, no. Let me take that. Let me walk that back. It recouped eight percent of its investment, and I think that ended up being three point five million box office. Now there's an interesting twist on this, but essentially, uh, this is a western story that is class warfare in this mm. little town. $44 million budget. How much? Three, $44 million budget, $3.5 million gross. 8%. Bad, huh? Almost killed Westerns, killed his career. And killed Universal <laughs> Artists or United Artists. Yes. Ended that studio's legacy, and that was pretty solid, Jesse. Brutal. Woo! Ugh. Now, here's what's weird. Yeah. Remastered and reshot and re-released at Cannes in... And it's on the Criterion now, too. And now achieved some critical acclaim. I think it's 18 or 19, might have even been 20, might have been this year. Mm. One Palm d'Oro. Oh, wow. What happened? Yeah. I'm not going back. Yeah, that's it's a tough one to go back to because it is so long. I mean, it's so arduous, but great choice. I didn't even consider him. Ooh, Heaven's Gate. Yeah. Yuck. Good one. All right, I'm dying for your number two. All righty. Director is Mr. Steven Spielberg. The film is Munich, the masterpiece. Uh, one of many. You know, the guy's made a lot of really great. Um, Raiders is my favorite of his films. Uh, I even considered you know, Saving Private Ryan in there. I love myself some Jaws. 
But I think Munich's a pretty good little thriller. Love it. Eric Bana, Daniel Craig, the, at the, Olymp- the Olympics, this whole uh, investigation into terrorist bombings. And the follow-up to Munich, Indiana Jones and the mm. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Mm. Ugh. I'm already telling you right now, I'm on super the edge of my seat for this part five because I don't know how this could be work in any conceivable way. And Spielberg's not even the director's chair for this new one. But I can't even begin to tell you the colossal disappointment that Crystal Skull was to the point where you were actually at the midnight screening I was at. And we were both like, God, that was kind of some bullshit. <laughs> we should have gone to bed. Oh, man, that's so it's it's going to be hard to beat that in, in Spielberg's uh, filmography. So that's my number two. Excellent choice. Um, I think there are certain concepts that are really hard to mess up. Mm-hmm. Archaeology is one of those concepts. I just think they waited too long. It's It was something that should have taken place in the 90s, late, mid-90s, if they wanted to do. Like, it was just too little, too late. And the idea is so stupid. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so number two. This mm. is one that you and I have spoken about before on the show. Okay. <sighs> Mr. Josh Trank. Okay. No, oh, good one. <laughs> I kicked around a couple other ones, but this one to me is such an example of a little too big for your shoes Mm -hmm. right out of the bat. Oh, yes. Now, Chronicle is the predecessor to Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. Chronicle, for what it's worth, which would be found footage superhero film, which tends to lean in a very formulaic model, and this is anything but... Michael B. Jordan, mm-hmm. Dane DeHaan, remember him? Yep. <laughs> yeah. What happened to that guy? Oh, it was Amazing Spider-Man 2 is what happened to that guy. <laughs> Down in Flames with Mark Webb. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Um, Josh Trank's father is an Academy Award winning documentarian. And I think that had a little bit to do with his start in film. Okay. Sure. Welcome to the industry. Mm-hmm. It's all about who you know pretty much in all walks of life. Yeah. He kills it out of the gate. Yeah. With a bunch of no names, and there's clearly some talent with the two that I mentioned there. (laughs) One a little more talented than the other. But Chronicle is a masterpiece in its own right for what it could be. Yeah, sure. And then you get the Fantastic Four. Fought with Marvel. They were rewriting it along the way. He was fired twice. Yeah. (laughs) And then eventually they just threw a bunch of celluloid together and said, get it in the can and let's get it out. And it's terrible. It is. (laughs) For all of the Roger Corman. Yeah. And even the two attempts that they tried to make Fantastic Four with. Oh, this is by far the worst version. It's the worst with the biggest budget. And a great cast. And something they took four swings at. What what did he have uh, kind of in the pipe and it all got, was it Boba Fett? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I read something today that he was fired from Boba Fett because, or no, he quit Boba Fett because he was on the verge of being fired from it. I think this guy is impossible to work with sounds like it yeah all right great choice i I didn't consider that one too but that's another dumpster fire happening over there with the fantastic four film which we toyed about you know maybe covering at some point in in the future mine uh the director wes craven the film that i perceive as the nightmare on elm street his follow-up one of the worst sequels of all time it's the hills have eyes part two uh, this is absolutely atrocious. It's uh, almost like this dirt bike, you know, subterranean gang. Uh, 
I don't know what Wes Craven did, but in between his glimpses of brilliance with like Hills Have Eyes and Scream and Nightmare, he'd follow it up with the worst films you could possibly imagine. Deadly Friend, uh, <laughs> Music from the Heart, uh, fucking Shocker and uh, People mm. Under the Stairs. I don't know what happened in those eras, but it really sheds light on the brilliant brilliance and the crap of the crap. And Hills Have Eyes Part 2 is the crap of the crap. Uh, I would speak to that, but I've never seen it. (laughs) The Hills Have Eyes 1 was enough for me. Um, You know, that's an interesting concept would be selection that that guy was involved with. Just the Mm -hmm. general premise on why he chose A or B. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Because you mentioned a couple in there, and you can't argue the brilliance of some of that. Yeah, there's a lot of things in there I really Music from like. the heart is so good. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. I didn't even bring up, like, New Nightmare and, like, some of those interesting endeavors that that he took. But it's just, in between, it's just a bunch of garbage. <laughs> All right. All righty, what do you got next? Another person that we've spoken about often on this podcast. Mm. I'm going to go a two-for-one on this. Ooh, okay. He's so I'm more than one. <laughs> well, two really solid films followed by... Oh, a train wreck. Okay. So the two films are in 1987 and 1989. Okay. Want to take a stab? Uh-uh. 1987's The Untouchables. Oh. 1989's Casualties of War. Oh. Followed by 1990's Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh my God. Ooh. If you want me to plug a, another podcast right now, I, you mean, I remember that Peter Bogdanovich podcast, the mm-hmm. the screening room, or what, <laughs> what the hell is that? There? The projection booth? Or? Are you going to do, I had a Bogdanovich possibility here too. Well, no, because their new season right now is all about the production of ban, ban, Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh, right really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you start? Have you jumped in? I yet? haven't jumped in yet because I've actually never seen that movie. I just oh. I just know the stories and I want to watch it first and then listen to this podcast. But I need to give you the right name because it's none of those titles I just told you. When we do another rock gut cask, that might be one. The plot thickens. The plot thickens. Oh, there they are. Oh man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dude. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Terrible. Mm. I don't want to talk too much about it because I think we've just committed to seeing it. And yeah, I want you to absolutely. go first time. Yeah, it blows. That's a terrible film. Any other consideration to his later entries in his career? Well, I mean, there is the um, Raising Cane, mm. which followed this, so you'd think his career is on life support. And then he kind of finds his footing again with Carlito's Way. And then Mission Impossible, right? And then Snake Eyes. Oh, God. <laughs> and then Mission to Mars. Mm. And then Femme Fatale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all going downhill now. Well... Here's the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, this this would be an entry if it preceded like Body Double or Scarface. Do us 06. We got to do, okay. The Black Dahlia. We've done so many De Palma films. Best, right, worst of De Palma. Right, no, rightly so, but we need to do another one because we've talked a lot about Body Double. We got to do Body Double. We got to do Dress <clears> to Kill, <throat> Bonfire of the Vanities. Black, we, there's so many more we can put into a cast for him. So we kind of fun to do that. One bad one, one good one, one bad one, one good one. Mm-hmm. I like it. I rewatched Body Double recently. That movie's wild. Did it hold up? Uh, in a good way, yeah. It's, it's very rear window and vertigo-like with Mr. Craig Wass. <laughs> well, we, we've talked about that Obsession film mm-hmm. forever. I just got to tell you, the scene in Body Double, the Frankie Goes to Hollywood music video scene in Body Double is absurd in all the best ways. Yeah. So, to that. What a great list. It was fun, wasn't it? Yours too. There were some directors I just I couldn't really, you know... 
like pick from like you know if they even if they stumbled a bit it wasn't something you know arduous but you know i thought about hitchcock and i was like i know there's the birds and then marnie but i was like yeah marnie's not entirely the worst uh there's worst films i can find and i tried to find some you know scorsese in there and that was a little difficult too so some people they you know they're able to skirt away from it but there was um be damned if the the name of the film escapes me right now, but there was a Billy Wilder entry in here too. Mm. Following Milan in the Lost Weekend, he did something with Gene Kelly. It's like the Emperor's Waltzer. So it's one of those traps yeah. that Hollywood fell into often, which was here's a terrible concept, but Gene Kelly's in it, so he'll be flashy and good enough at dancing to kind of pull it off. And it's a musical, obviously, with Gene Kelly that is sort of hinges on... <laughs> A chance dog meeting and the romance that ensues between some non-compatible dancing partners. Um, it's like the Emperor's Waltz, something along those okay, lines. Yeah, I've never seen that one. Oof. Oof. Interesting. Yeah. For another great filmography. Well, to your list. No consideration for the Magnificent Ambersons. Mm. A little bit. Certainly. Yeah. But we're going to talk about him plenty today. <laughs> Low-hanging fruit, because we're going to do an hour on him, I imagine. Yes, excellent. Well, let's get right into it. Our review breakdown of The Sixth Sense. Vincent. Vincent Gray. <gasps> I do remember you. Quiet. Very smart. Compassionate. Compassion. You forgot cursed. You failed me. You failed me! Vincent, I'm sorry if I wasn't... If I didn't help you. But if you just let me try, you just give me a chance. Alrighty, let's start here at the beginning. At the credits, first thing I just want to point out, the this score by James Newton Howard. And Howard did all the way up to, I think, The Happening with, with Shyamalan. All really good scores. This one, Unbreakable, Signs, The Village, all have really terrific music. And very. I, I love the way the titles just kind of like zoom in at us really closely. To catch any of uh, the producing titles, Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy involved in this thing. So maybe not everything Kathleen Kennedy has laid her hands on has gone up in smoke. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, I, was, I forgot that they were kind of heavily involved in, in this first effort. They certainly have the power to greenlight things. Mm -hmm. It is puzzling why they chose this, because this is actually a pretty solid concept mm -hmm. that she or he, probably more along the lines of she, didn't get in the way of and screw up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like Interesting. from all, all the research I did and kind of just digging into this film, it seems like Shyamalan got to, you know, essentially kind of do his script and do the film the way he wanted to do it and cast who he wanted who he wanted in it. So to his powers, I mean, he's still fairly green at this point. No one had ever heard of this guy. And part of, I think, the pill of his, seeing his name in the credits is, and we've talked about this before, he has such a unique name, M. Night Sham. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that just looks weird. It looks uh, supernatural, you know what I mean? His name just appearing. What does M mean? What is that? <laughs> it's not even Blinding Edge yet, right? Mm -mm. We haven't even formed Blinding Edge pictures yet. Because he had no money until this thing came out, so. It's an interesting idea. This is a very, very low-concept spec idea. Mm -hmm. And... 
the film that predated this was Rosie O'Donnell. Mm. Um, oh, Scarface guy, uh, Robert. Um, Logia. Thank you. <laughs> Story about a young man trying to figure out what God meant. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important moment in Shemilan's history because he does have a spiritual element in his films. I do think that this is a man mm-hmm. that isn't afraid to blend in the secular and the non-secular and does it without being off-putting or yeah. preachy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but if you've seen that first film, it's right there. Yeah, And this and a lot of his supernatural stuff has sort of that idea of the omniscient or omnipotent in it. Mm-hmm. So the question I guess I'd like to ask you, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but there is a very remarkable ending in this film. Mm -hmm. Did they look at they being Marshall and Kennedy? Mm -hmm. Did they look at the script, read it to the end and say, we can't tweak A, B, or C because Z is so good. And if we screw up A, B, C, or D, then Z is reduced to not as effective. And was that so well-written yeah. and so well-conceived and so well-structured and so shocking yeah. that it made the rest of the script bulletproof, in your opinion? Um, Producer bulletproof. I think, absolutely. I think uh, like the ending is one of the end-all endings of all time, and we can talk about that at, at, at the end, or maybe maybe right here, because I actually wanted to ask you, and I'll finish answering my question after I ask this question. Okay. When you first saw this film, like, what did this this ending? Did you know it going in? Did it did it get you? Like, what was your kind of whole thing? Because I knew it before I ever saw it. Unfortunately. <sighs> okay, so this is one of those urban legends that everybody likes to say. Oh, I knew in the opening credits. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a thing around that. With all the truth and sincerity that I can possibly muster for the answer. Yeah. I knew in the restaurant when they were having dinner mm. and she doesn't speak to him. Mm. That's when I knew. Yeah. Now it wasn't, he's dead. Yeah. It was, man, something's off there. And I wonder if, so it wasn't locked down hundred percent, but, but you have the suspicion. Now. I knew then. Yeah. And if you go back and rewatch it again, which you did, mm-hmm. there's a lot that doesn't happen in that scene. And if you pay close attention from that point forward, she doesn't speak to him the rest of the movie. Yeah. So that's when I knew. Interesting. Now, and what, I hate being that guy. No, I don't no, want, no, I'm no. not trying to be the guy that's like, oh, I saw it coming. I, I'm, I swear I really did know it happened at that point. Well, it didn't change the film. For yeah, me, well, we'll talk about and then we'll talk about the end, how, the, how, that, how that all works. But I actually had it spoiled for me in the stupidest way. I was watching... Uh, Family Guy. No, 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 no. When uh, E the E Channel used to like not show garbage, mm. but they had like a cool kind of like hunt, top hundred mm-hmm. most shocking Hollywood moments, and it was stuff with movies. It was shocking deaths and incidents. Natalie Wood getting you know drowning and whatnot, and this was one of them. And it, I didn't mute it fast enough, and I heard. And when I heard it in the thing, I was like wow, that's, that's quite a twist. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To go the whole way and think this guy's alive and he's not is that's substantial. So, uh, I went back and, you know, saw it and then, you know, it didn't have the sting that it, it could have had, but the one that did was unbreakable because I went into that one entirely fresh. And that was kind of the ending that was like, Oh wow. Like, I can't believe this was, this was, this happened at the end here. But, uh, I was just curious, but to answer your bulletproof question, absolutely. I think it was such a, 
if they could fool the audience for 90 minutes and get to that moment, they would have something they could, that people would talk about for decades, Mm -hmm. which was what happened. Mm -hmm. And that allowed some kind of free will, maybe allowed him to kind of do some things that now first time. And I call him first time because this is his first time with a lot of money, uh, with a substantial cast, Rosie O'Donnell, whatever, but like Bruce Willis and Tony Collette and Olivia Williams and being able to do something with a budget, you know, 40 million is the budget of this film. That's a decent amount to, you know, you know, lay out your canvas. Uh, and I think a lot of his strengths come through in this film that I had, had forgotten about. I really miss, and maybe it just made me harken back to the garbage that we, the happening and all those terrible films, mm-hmm. glass, mm-hmm. these character moments, especially in, in this so many scene, like I love this stuff when he does it good. You know what I mean? Like this stuff with Bruce Willis and, and his wife here at the beginning, drunken wine evening here he is she bought him this beautiful frame for this award that the mayor gave him for all his services to the cyfd youth of the city of philadelphia like all the sacrifices and we get it so subtly which is what i like about it is they've had to sacrifice a lot in their relationship because of his work and it's done in like a throwaway line and now finally we can move past that and enjoy this like now we can like fix this whatever kind of rifts there uh, he's drunkenly talking like Dr. Seuss. It's the thing he does. And that all just goes so south so quickly uh, when Mr. Donnie Wahlberg shows up here. What would he think of this, this this opening scene? I mean, if Shyamalan wanted to hit us quick and fast, I think he really does that. Donnie Wahlberg was terrifying when he showed up the way he showed up in this film mm-hmm. and still is to this day. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of, I think, important pieces that uh, deserve some conversation. And number one is, Mm -hmm. I know Bruce Willis is John Mm McClane. There's a case to be made that Bruce Willis is the best Bruce Willis when he's understated as he is in these two films back to back. Mm -hmm. It made me, because his career goes very much the way of Shyamalan as well. Well, Hudson Hawk and just oh, yeah. the terrible decisions. But when Willis, Color of Night. When Willis and, is good, he's he's pretty good. Like, And has always been that way. Mm-hmm. Shyamalan is able to reel him in and get him to play understated and compassionate. And it presents a more likable character. Now, John McClane would not work understated. Let's not mm-hmm. beat around the bush or be silly here. Yeah, John McClane works because it's brash and violent and Mm -hmm. all of those things Mm -hmm. multiple times (laughs) but you can see if you look at the bruce willis portrayals in this film and then the follow-up which is obviously unbreakable some very similar traits among the thing you also said which was relationship between male and female in this it's still together Mm -hmm. and there's a brighter day coming in the subsequent film it's fallen apart because there is no brighter day coming Mm -hmm. and that's the big difference yeah but David Dunn is very similar yeah. in a lot of ways to Dr. Malcolm Crow. Dr. Yeah. Malcolm Crow mm-hmm. in this film. The second thing that comes to mind when I see Wahlberg just burned into my mm-hmm. my mind, crazy as hell, sweaty and strung his, out. His little nipple ring. Naked <laughs> and all that. <laughs> Has Shemilan? Yeah. He's delved in it a little bit, so I don't want to be remiss and not acknowledge it. Has he missed his calling? Has Shemilan missed the genre that he was cut out for? Is he the more 
90s, 90-ish version by decade 90s version of auteur horror. Is uh, he the, to- the 90s Ari Aster? Absolutely. He is, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. I'm going to mention Alfred Hitchcock for the first time. Chalk it up on the thing. Once. <laughs> I was watching it this time. I was like, it's impossible not to make comparisons to Hitchcock. And that's almost unfair to Shyamalan because he does, I think, carve out his own niches and his own unique sensibilities. But he is this era's version of that suspense thriller director. And it is almost, and I, and I wonder what happened. And I wonder if he got so burnt out on trying to come up with all these crazy outlandish concepts that it just turned into absurdity. But here in the beginning, this Unbreakable and Signs, we'll just call it the unofficial trilogy, mm-hmm. all really well thought out, really well put together. But what I, and I mentioned this in episode one, this is how far back we go with this guy. The central themes of all those supernatural happenings are around something a lot deeper, whether that's communication or loss of faith. And those things take center stage and everything else kind of steps back. And that's okay. Uh, and when those things do happen, they're fair, they're and obvious and they're suspenseful and whatnot, but those human character moments, I think really shine through and yeah, you're absolutely right. I think he did miss his calling. Now I, no director wants to make the same film all the time. They want to branch out and try their hand at whatever they might want to try, but I thought he was really good at it here early on. I really think he was. Uncanny and horror go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. If you take in those three films that you mentioned specifically, mm-hmm. in the sixth sense. Um, let's talk about central internal conflict for Malcolm Crow. Would you say um, isolation? You know what I kind of get from him too, especially with Vincent giving it to him so bad here and with his wife. I think he is kind of good at his job, but then also kind of not good. I mean, I think there's times when he... he has a lack of communication with his subjects. Yeah, so let's go with labor. Let's Mm -hmm. take labor. So we'll take labor for um, the sixth sense. It is absolutely isolation Mm -hmm. and unbreakable. Mm -hmm. And it is lack of faith or loss of faith Mm -hmm. in science. Each one of those three things is akin to uncanny as the character tries to recover what they've lost. And these three films, each of the main character roles, two by Willis, one by Mel Gibson, Mm -hmm. the character's on a quest. Too bad Bruce Willis didn't play the last one. This would be like an unofficial trilogy here. Strange, yeah, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We see the character that they're playing struggle with that repression. It's not quite uncanny because the whore element of uncanny is when it comes back. Mm -hmm. That's the reason that I asked did he miss his calling? Because if you're going to be able to show that the way that he does, which is just rot drama mm-hmm. in a way that we care about it and can feel, and you certainly have to have capable portrayals yeah. to do it. And then when it comes back, it explodes in this horrific manner, the return of the repressed yeah. uncanny. Then and. Man, it's all around this film, too, because this is kind of a horror light movie. Mm-hmm. I think, even though I asked you, and it was rhetorically asking, because I just wanted you to say yes so I could do this little tangent. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer is irrefutably less. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, we didn't get that. I mean, I guess you could maybe make the case in The Visit. I mean, yeah, it's- a little bit with Devil, even though he's more like on the money side, the production side, then the directorial side. It came back a little bit, but not Signs like, a little bit. Not like how it is here. This is like, 
the comparisons to Hitchcock, I think, are, are are just because this is, you know, this. If Hitchcock was alive in '99, this is kind of the type of film he would make. There's some kind of crazy. The only thing there may be some psychosexual Freudian thing taking place at the same time, and then it's a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> you know, okay, so that's two for Hitchcock. Let me go ahead and make three. So in the battle versus uh, Orson Welles, Hitchcock's up three uh, zero. Put up a three spot in the first inning here. Okay. Um, The difference that's going to be really tough to stomach for Shemilan going forward is where Hitchcock might do a cute little cameo or have maybe some ties working with the writers. He was content Mm -hmm. just storyboarding and directing. Yeah. And that's where I think Shemilan takes a very strong variance and to me, that's not entirely the deal breaker because he does appear in this film and not in an obvious, because back in 99, you're like, you don't know who that guy is until right. the film comes out. But right. then um, it's a little bit less in Unbreakable. And then he has the, he's the guy that killed his wife in Signs. And I don't know, he's barely in The Village. But by the time we get to Lady in the Water, oh, yeah, he's, he's got a full supporting role in that thing. Yeah. But uh, I think where it killed it for me uh, was, I guess, in post this film's success and we'll get out of this opening scene here in just a second but the way they marketed it all the other films going forward and we talked about that with unbreakable like they sold that as like a suspense like monster movie and it's Mm -hmm. like not that at all Mm -hmm. but because they put from the director of the sixth sense you just you kind of like you're going in with those expectations and i think that became its curse like there was an expectation when you went to see it to meet this film's level of of what it provided to the audience when they first saw it. That shock, that uh, twist, those emotional moments. And he didn't want to do that. So if the studio's selling it as that, but you're not doing that, they're trying to get butts and seats, but you've made a totally different film. Like, that's a losing effort right there. Bottom of the first inning, the home team's up to bat, and here's the first one. Pitch over the left field wall, Mr. Orson, Orson Welles. Yeah. <laughs> In a very similar fashion labeled genius early on. And for as much as we do heap the accolades of not getting involved on Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy here, Mm -hmm. I think that going forward grows exponentially and there's no restraint in the room at all until the guy's completely derailed his career. Mm. Am I talking about Orson Welles or am I talking about Shemaya? You're talking about both of them. Right? So do you think Kennedy and Marshall helped kind of like... Even though we said it was producer proof, but they still kind of like kept the train going towards the station. I think that at that time they said, I don't have proof of this. This is all just hypothesis. Sure, yeah. I think they said, we have to get out of the way. We're not going to world build, even though there's a potential in repetition with horror. This is a standalone film. Let's get out of this way. We don't want to screw up the ending. I tell you, there's a TV show in this movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> right? No kidding. Yeah. And then it becomes such a part of popular film lexicon mm-hmm. from I see dead people to the twist ending that we couldn't tell you about, which mm-hmm. is now starting to back to four one, I guess. Orson mm-hmm. Welles got out of the ending with just give, getting up one run. Yeah. Is now starting to play on the hype train kind of around maybe like Psycho. Like Hitchcock was all built around marketing. So we're back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we mentioned this before. Do you remember that crazy ass thing that they did? It was like the secret world of M. Night Shyamalan. Mm-hmm. I think it came out before The Village. Yep. It was on like Sci-Fi Channel. Yep. 
trying to see like that guy was like more than just like a regular filmmaker. He was like, there's something he like, he was like an alien or something. God, yes. Do you remember that? Just all part of the hype machine. So yeah, think about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so where they said, let's get out of this guy's way and let him just do his thing. Mm-hmm. We don't see that come in. It shows up a little bit after Unbreakable. That's when they called him into the office and said, hey, your trilogy's dead, even though it ended up still making, getting getting produced. Mm-hmm. Um, about the time Lady in the Water flops mm-hmm. is about the time they said, hey, we uh, have decided to really put on the restraints here so much that we're mostly not going to greenlight anything unless it's a passion project with the one bankable star in Hollywood. That'd be Mr. Will Smith mm. and his son. Goodness. <laughs> so I'm, I'm skipping a few steps in there, but it's strange the trajectory that all three of these guys' careers take mm-hmm. because Hitchcock succeeded and the other two failed pretty hard. I mean, if, if I was going to rank them filmmaking-wise, mm-hmm. it's Hitchcock, obviously, number one. Yeah. Shemilan, number two, and Orson Welles, number three. But they all sort of orbit around the same sun and that same sun is freedom. Mm -hmm. I guess it's just how fast your planet is spinning in orbit. Well, this is the first thing I noticed just in, and in the credits, because going forward, it's always written, produced and directed by M night Shyamalan here. It's just written and directed by M night Shyamalan. So there you go. He has his job to do and that's what he's going to do. Uh, but in this opening scene, yeah, we got Mark, and I think Donnie Wahlberg's, you know, pretty pretty creepy in this oh. thing. Like he looked like Dirk Diggler, like Dirk Diggler thin mm-hmm. in in that, like that skinny like six pack that Wahlberg has in that. Well said. Um, Wahlberg wishes he had better Shyamalan content than the shit he got. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, well, right. He puts a bullet into David Dunn before killing himself, and we're just like, oh my god, like like this gracious night of celebration has turned into an absolute nightmare cut to the next fall and we're just like, and then we catch up with him. And then that's where the first lie is, is, Oh, I guess he survived here. He is, he's back at his job. And then as the film turns around and we get to the scene you talked about, that was kind of the giveaway. He's face deep in the work again, almost as a reaction to that scene to the audience. Now this is just perceived as how the audience is supposed to perceive it. He feels so guilty about what happened to that kid that he can't let that happen to another kid. So doesn't matter if he's got to work 70-hour weeks, he's in it to, to be in it. And it's sacrificing his relationship here, as, as we see. Introduce new subject, Mr. Cole Sear. Little Haley Joel Osment here. Let's talk about him for a bit, because Shaman always talked about it. He was like, I, I wrote this character, and I wrote something that could almost not be played by a child actor with believability. Uh <clears throat> Haley Joel Osment had been around for a, a little while. He's actually Forrest Jr. and Forrest Gump. Secondhand Lions? Yeah, that's, and that's before. That's after. That's after? Okay. Mm-hmm. But a couple small things. I think he he was in like Full House or some of those shows. But here, almost having to... Uh, Bruce Willis is the lead, but it's, Cole Sears almost the lead of this film too. The sixth sense is the sense of communicating with the afterlife. Or not communicating, but seeing mm-hmm. the visages of the afterlife. And I, I think we see it right from the get-go. I think and he looks so goofy with those glasses. He's just a cute little boy. But the way he locks up his house and then just books it, he's already seeing these things all around him. Mm-hmm. 
And in a city like Philadelphia, that is uh, so much history mm. to the Revolutionary War and just every, like, can you just imagine you have colonial ghosts, you have ghosts from the Civil War, you have, you know, stuff from the 70s. Like, this kid's seeing some shit. There's nowhere to go. Inner city, outer city. Yeah, it's all around him. But Historically we, sound plays. Yeah, it's well said. Exactly. But, but the film takes a decent amount of time, probably about 15 minutes until we get what's... And it's spoiled in the trailer, of course, but what's wrong with him and why he is acting. They think it's a mood disorder. They think he's acting out. Um, I guess the biggest thing, the, the biggest question I have, and it's it's not going to really hurt a lot of the film for me, but like, where does David Tun get this info to start investigating this kid if he is perceived dead? Did he already have this one in the chamber, or what do you think? Does the film give you evidence for that? Or? I didn't see it, but it would make sense that he had already started down the casework with this kid. And he might have, because he has a plethora of notes on him already. So let's go with that. Um what would be really interesting to me, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a miss. If there's a color in this film that's significant, it's red. Oh, yeah. I would really like him to have Cole's notebook open mm-hmm. or the, the manila folder, but with some tie to his name in red or some red on that as a way to build it or to kind of lock him into that space. Cause that essentially is what red does. It creates a boundary that he can or cannot exist in or out of mm-hmm. he being Bruce Willis. But, but it's I, also, I, I'm going to go. I, that's my, that's a terrible answer for your question. Um, I think he it's not was already the, working with him. the answer I'm looking for. Oh, okay. Uh, but the, the red follows like all the dead too. I mean, whether it's, you know, I noticed it this time when they're on the bus to go to the family's funeral, there's a, like a trellis like outside the, like the house that's like all like red flowers kind of a thing. So even just like those things kind of like slip by you, but that color really sticks out, whether it's the clothing, the door handle on his basement, to really kind of let you know about this boundary between dead and alive. Why red? Archetypally, it doesn't fit. It so doesn't, why red? Red's power, passion. I think red, if you're going to go with the muted tone film and they go with like a fallish Philadelphia look, I think red more than any other color is going to stick out better. Okay. So um, that's going to come back again in the village. The red is what wards off evil in, mm-hmm. in, in that particular film. So maybe it's something with him. Maybe it's his favorite color. I don't know. Yeah, it might be. Uh, well, let me tell you about one of my favorite things. It's yeah. Tony Collette. <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, she's God. been reviewed very positively on this podcast. I think she got screwed in this film too. You know what I mean? Like this relationship between Cole and his mother, Lynn, played by Tony Collette, is so well put together by Shyamalan. The writing of these scenes, because they already, he portrays it, like just, you get that, that they live in a Chantate little mm. apartment, mm. Uh, and they don't even have their lives together. Like this is kind of a mess. Uh the supernatural happenings with the the cabinets going open. Did you do this? Were you looking for the pop tart? Like Cole's trying to play it off because he doesn't want to tell anybody a secret because he doesn't want anyone to think he's weird because he kind of thinks is what's alluded to is he broke up his parents' marriage, right? Mm-hmm. So he's he's got a lot going on. He's he's burdening a lot, but it's really fracturing their relationship too because he won't be forthcoming to her. He won't tell her the truth. What you just stated right there is such solid foundation Mm -hmm. for drama inside whatever supernatural element he's going to. So did you hear what you said? Mm -hmm. The guilt of destroying my parents' relationship. Therefore, I'm going to carry this very heavy cross of seeing these ghosts 
at an age that I am far too weak to carry this burden. Mm -hmm. And then secondarily, I don't want anyone else to think that I'm weird. So as I'm trying not to be isolated, everything I do is isolating me even more. And you know what the solution for the isolated is in film? (laughs) You give them a friend. And lo and behold, you get a dead friend. <laughs> but that's good. It's it's almost like it's like a mentorship role too that he kind of takes to kind of see him through this and be his guide as much as he possibly can be. Those are solid drama chops, Jesse. <clears throat> like that's the space that I think you and I both see and clamor for. Mm-hmm. It's real simple, like the human condition explained in a way on screen that draws sympathy. Mm-hmm. When he's on point, he being the director, he does that. Yeah, better than a lot of people I can think of. I don't want to say effortlessly because I don't know if it's maybe with great effort. Mm -hmm. He does it seamlessly from screen to audience. When he misses, it's Wahlberg in the happening. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right? He misses big and he he swings for the fences. Like it's (laughs) glass too. It's Sam Jackson and glass. It's absolutely. And then like the genius that split is, is, and then you have... The Last Airbender, like it's yes. just so all over the place. Uh, but we'll talk about that later because I think I have another hypothesis on what happened to Shyamalan in between all of these films. Drugs? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, he, we kind of take this acting out the possible mood disorder because Cole, I think, is a little subconscious about how people perceive him, the public. And I always thought this scene was pretty interesting too. You're a stuttering Stanley. Mm. Excuse me? You talked funny when you went to school here. You talked funny all the way to high school. What? You shouldn't look at people. It makes them feel bad. How did you... Stop in defensive looking at me. mode. Who have you been speaking to? Stuttering Stanley! Stuttering Stanley! Stuttering Stanley! Stuttering Stanley! Stop that! Mm. So raise it up to Haley Joel Osment for yeah. a minute. Good job, buddy. What that looks like, you know, like a kid acting out or something, that's like a total defense mechanism putting up like, now he's amping it up a bit because he thinks his teacher's looking right through him, that he sees this freakness behind the veil. Yeah. And that's why he starts doing the, what he's doing. So we know something's up. As an audience watching this, unless you saw the trailers and you're thinking like you're like you're waiting for the moment to happen when you get the the revelation. And it's after this birthday party that he goes to, to these friends that are just the worst. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lock him in and I, this was crazy too. It was I kind of wanted to know who, what this ghost deal was that was locked in the dumb waiter like th- that's why I thought like colonial ghost, maybe a slave, I don't know. Mm. That was like he's like let me out here, let me out, let me out here and then he gets locked in there with him. And then the evidence, and then, you know, blinking, you'll miss it in the opening scene, but Donnie Wahlberg, from his nipple ring to his frail skin, has scratches all over his back, like like claw marks, too. And this is what's going to happen to Cole here in this scene, that when they freak out in reaction to the ghosts is when they get defensive. And that's what happens in this scene here, where they kind of tear him up a little bit. Boy, that's loaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you get too scared or defensive, it empowers the ghosts and incites them to attack. Mm-hmm. So the only recourse then to not be ripped asunder <laughs> is to just 
exist in a world with them. Or how old is Jolie, Haley Joss? How old is Cole? How Cole in this? Nine or ten. Okay, yeah, I'm yeah, with you. Yeah, that's again back to that burden, the lofty expectations. How much can I carry? Because I'm so young. Oh man, what? <laughs> I feel like I'm talking about the same thing I just mm-hmm. said. What you're doing is you're creating a character that I, you, those of us that like this film Mm -hmm. can instantly side with because you can feel how much torment and hell this kid is suffering. Don't want to be scratched. He gets scratched. You're right. The Wahlberg thing Mm -hmm. is a beautiful setup that's paid off really, really well. Mm -hmm. If he doesn't yell at stuttering Stanley, if he doesn't yell at the dumbwaiter, if he doesn't yell at any of the numerous ghosts that he sees and he just allows them all to exist, is he okay? How do you live in that world? Well, let's talk about his little fort that he has. Go. Yeah, this like it's red, of, right? It's a red little fort, but I love how he's pilfering religious statues from the church to kind of build up a, another defensive mechanism, a wall of religion to ward off the evil ghosts. And you got a few living in this house. He's got this kid that blew his brains out with his dad's gun. And then mm. this wife that cut herself because she didn't cook the meatloaf right or something. Come here. Let me show you something. Yeah. So he's got a lot going on in this house and the dog's akin to it a little bit, this cute little husky, husky puppy that, the, that they got here. But even that is just a veil of a uh, defense mechanism to something to ward off the evil because from an adolescent child mind, he has nothing but to fear them. It's not until later when he's like, oh, maybe I should listen to them. Again, the communication comes into that. But we get Mr. Shyamalan's cameo there, and he instantly accuses the the very suspicious of the mother. Like, mm-hmm. you never touch your son or like you abuse your, your, your child? I have a social worker here that wants to ask you some questions. And she's just so offended. Like, how I would never – and I love the little game that they have that – and I think they do it at least three or four times when – he asks her, are you upset with me? Are you ashamed of me, mama? And he says, she says, look at my face. I would never, like, of course not. Like, always, like, they're on good terms when they talk to each other. But when there's this void is when the rifts happen. But then we get the moment, Matt. We get the big moment. I see dead people. In your dreams? People like in graves and coffins. Walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead. How often do you see them? All the time. The Sixth Sense, the title of the film. So sight, smell, hearing, sound, olfactory, <laughs> and dead people. <laughs> Damn. Uh, but this is a big moment because this is a huge pop culture milestone, first of all. This line often parried, and mm-hmm. the producers thought they wrecked the twist in this scene, though, because when he says it, they do like a slow like dolly zoom in on Willis's face, and... Frank Marshall, you watch the DVD. He was like, I thought we ruined it. He's like, I thought we blew it, that we gave away that he was dead in that moment. Uh, mm. But I think that the way that he couples that information with like Willis asked those questions so quickly, like people in coffins and graves, no, they're just walking around. They're not, they're just like dead people. Like they're hanging in the, the rafters. They're walking down the street, like all this crazy stuff. 
it's a big moment and it comes about halfway through the film, but then the film changes after that. Like with this huge burden secret, Cole feels he can trust in this fatherly figure with this secret. And Malcolm's like, well, what do I do with this next? Like, how do I even respond to this? Give you a question. Okay. You're out on a date. And in that date, the gal that you're with either has some disgusting piece of food in her teeth or a bat in the cave, some some boogie in the nose. Yeah. She has no idea. You can clearly see it. Yeah. Do you tell her mm-hmm. or do you just shine it on? What do you do? Probably just shine it on. <laughs> okay, me yeah. too. Yeah. The reason I ask you that is that is significantly less conflicted than what this kid is dealing with. Mm-hmm. You and I wouldn't even say, hey, there's a piece of broccoli in your teeth or um, you should go get a Kleenex, yeah. right? Or f- your fly is down. You, any of those yeah. socially awkward moments. Mm-hmm. We're struggling with that. When Cole tells Malcolm um, Crow mm-hmm. that he sees dead people and they don't know it, the scenario that you and I just took or laid out is elevated to the X exponent because the question is, do I tell this person, hey man, I need to tell you something. You don't have broccoli in your teeth. You're actually dead. What if they're pissed off? Do you owe them that? Are you telling them that so that you can give them peace or that you can find peace yourself? Mm-hmm. So what I'm talking about then I guess is, the consequence to the action. And if there is a superpower that he's playing with, it's this, and it's his ability to communicate with the dead and the burden, Mm -hmm. the great power and the great responsibility is immense. And that's back to the weight that this little boy has to carry. And I also, like you said it a minute ago, that's why I love the religious artifacts in the tent because there's several Mm -hmm. of Christ and the crucifixion. Yep. That's pretty heavy. Yeah, that's, yeah. I'm not trying to be funny. It kind of oh, came yeah. out that way, but you know what I'm no, saying? It really is, yeah. So we're building up a very empathetic character at the age of eight, and he needs anyone that he can possibly find to help him with this weight. And I think that's also what aids and quells Marshall's fears is when we go tight on Willis's face at that moment. Mm-hmm. It's more like, I really need you. We are close together instead of, I mean you. Let me ask you this. Why don't you... Do I have broccoli in my teeth? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got some bourbon in your teeth. <laughs> yeah, okay. Why don't you think Why don't you think he can't tell his mom at, at, at any point? I think he's worried that she's going to think he's weird and he can't lose her. Oh, that's, that's fair, yeah. I know we're going to do the sound because it's one of your favorite scenes of all time, which is in the car in Grandma's Brooch. Well, I'll play the sound that kind of precedes that. That yeah. These two were so good together, you know what I mean? It's almost a shame that Shyamalan never put them in another one of his films because the chemistry was really good, but they, much like Samuel L. Jackson's really good with Tarantino, they're, like, they're really good with his words. But then like the way he shoots it, too, it's just like... To me, this isn't a guy with like his first stab at like at a huge lofty production on his shoulders. Like he's really in control of the camera and what he wants the audience to see. So did you move the bumblebee pendant?
get mad. So who moved it this time? Maybe someone came in our house, took the bumblebee pendant out of my closet, and placed it nicely in your drawer. Maybe. God, I am so tired, Cole. I'm tired in my body. I'm tired in my mind. I'm tired in my heart. I need some help. You know, I don't know if you noticed, but our little family isn't doing so good. Mm. I mean, I've been praying. Mm. But I must not be praying right. Looks like we're just going to have to answer each other's prayers. If we can't talk to each other, we're not going to make it. Brutal. Yeah. At their little sad little dinner table. And scaffolded so well because the things that she's doing are the same things that he's relying on. If that's prayer and the handing this over to a higher power, it's also not working for him because it's not protecting him from these ghosts. And he just can't tell her. So from Knives Out to Little Miss Sunshine to Hereditary to this. She's so good. She is so good. I just wanted to take a minute and just like a moment of silence. Did you know she's Australian? I did. She's so good with like just a, an American accent. Yeah, I, I never knew for the longest time until I saw her do a film with her actual accent. That she's able to just speak so Americanese effortlessly. Really? It's just like, and but that she's she brings so much pathos to these characters. Mm. And then we're going to do Hereditary one of these days. And that's yeah. going to be a hell of an episode because we saw that together and we were just so <sighs> blown away by just everything we saw. But here, just 19, that's 20 years before, before, before that film, this film. To her. And nothing else other than Absolutely. quiet for you because you're so good. Yes. Um, okay, let's. Put Orson Welles back in the batter's box here. Scores 4-1, I believe. Orson Welles, he sets out he wants to make a film. One of the films he did want to make, and it never happened, was Heart, Joseph Conrad's Hearts of, Hearts of, Heart of Darkness, yep. which became Apocalypse Now. Mm -hmm. That never happened, and then he kind of tooled around, and then we saw Mank, and that was a disaster, but like he really got involved with this William Randolph Hearst like, media mogul story, which became Citizen Kane. Yeah. Can, can you imagine between a Newton and that film's Mankowitz helped him write that thing, but then he was in it and acted in it. And that's its own set of challenges. But can you imagine like when you tap into something like I almost get the idea that Shaman, when he wrote this thing like, in the writing of this thing, like whether he could sell it or not, but he was just like in the zone. Like he just like locked into something. It was just like, I know exactly what these characters need, what they want, how they feel, how they breathe, what they're going to look like. And when a writer is like so in tune with what they're putting onto the page, mm -hmm. it's incredible. And it, I see it here, especially. And then when he puts the page to the screen and puts it all together, you see where those lofty expectations, you know, come to be. And maybe some of it's ego that was given to him and how successful the film was, but when when you're just so like in tune to like all these little minuscule little moments and that little the Dr. Seuss uh Bruce Willis thing's going to come back here in a little bit as well that's rare you know what i mean like and, and it's nothing that even that no one could tell me other than Shyamalan if we ever sat next i could just feel it off this film that this guy was in something. He was in. He was drinking the right Kool Aid that day, or he wore the right outfit those days. But he was he was into something. I don't know how long it is from the writing of this to the completion of Unbreakable. The writing, like years wise, I really want to know. Yeah, that period. Mm -hmm. Let's say five years for just a a chapter way to bookmark this on the show today. 
that five-year period arguably is the five most effective years of designing on the page. Spec designing. Even better. Mm -hmm. Spec designing on the page characters that feel more than two-dimensional, more than three-dimensional, like sitting across the street from you or across the table from you Mm -hmm. on the silver screen. You hear him still make those claims fairly often. He said it with glass. He really did get it in split. Like he had, he had that character figured out and split all fifteen of them. But well, again, he tapped into something that really worked. <laughs> yeah. You brought up the Wells, so I guess we're going to make the score five two now. Okay. William Randolph Hearst, or is it four three? Is this make it four three? Four three. Yep. The William Randolph Hearst character is a singular moment of one of those characters. Mm-hmm. David Dunn, Robin Wright Penn, uh, Haley Joel Osment, Tony Collette, Sam Jackson, that ensemble of characters. Mm-hmm. Audrey and Unbreakable, I said Robin Wright Penn, but Audrey. Mm-hmm. Is no shooting French Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> A man who is a master at that particular craft, which is so difficult. It is difficult, and but it, but he, you're right. He's absolutely on fire yeah, with that. He's in something right now, and it's 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 hard to find. Like you, and then you either maintain that through your career, and I think some directors have been able to kind of take that and like do some like Nolan kind of fits in that vein. Like he tapped into something unique with Memento and was able to propel that idea into other ventures that worked for him. I want to ask you a question. So maybe I wonder if you and I are short selling this a little bit. Okay. Is signs the third piece to that puzzle? Are you going to include Mel Gibson and uh, Meryl? And because Mel Gibson's fucking character is amazing in that film. I too. love signs. I, it's, I know it's kind of a bit of the downward spiral down, but th- that I've never been more creeped out. That was the first like suspense thing I ever saw in a theater. And it terrified me. Like, the alien behind the garage, like those little moments. I, I love that he decided to do, and we'll do that movie. We'll, we'll, we'll do another Shyamalan film on the podcast, Matt, uh, to do an alien invasion film from the perspective of a little Pennsylvanian farm. You know what I mean? And then the things all taking place around that is just a, such a unique end to a genre that's super played out. So whether it's Rory Culkin as Morgan and the and then Abigail Breslin as... Those kids um, are good too in that movie. Yeah, yeah, but Graham and Merrill, mm-hmm. Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix, man, might be the other two pieces in what I was saying is a two-script run, and maybe it's a three-script run. That's not arguing that Signs is a masterpiece. I love that film, too. Yeah. But if we're defending this state that he's in and this, able, sure, yeah. this ability to tap into real-life drama and build from that something that we care about in a story that is essentially supernatural and all three of these first films are and you're right yeah it's the guy's really a master at this craft awesome that's really cool and all equally as much disappointing when it goes awry because then i want more of this like and that's why split was such a like it was so it was such a warm welcome. It was like he's back. He did it. He figured it out. And then like it's like kind of gone again. Mm-hmm. We were so disappointed by how glass turned out. And for a story that he claims to have had since two thousand was so ham fisted. Yeah. And oh. I'm not excited about old, but it kind of does. It's if it comes back and it's amazing, I'll give it its own due credit. But 
like I, he lost it, like split. It was a unique kind of I'm back moment. And then like I lost it again, mm-hmm. but let's kind of get to the crux of this film. So now he's revealed his secret. Bruce Willis comes to this conclusion after going through some files and some tapes of his old patients, Vincent's old audio. He's got to churn it up to 11 pretty much. And here's all this strange talking in Spanish, Portuguese, whatever that is, uh, these voices in there. So it puts kind of two and two together that like these, I think these kids were kind of suffering from the same thing. And it was like, I didn't listen that time. I need to listen this time because if, if I fail now, he's going to become the next Vincent. He's going to shoot me again or like something terrible is going to happen. And I can't fail that way the way I felt that time. So he opens up and he says, I think you, you listen to them, see what they want. I don't think they want to hurt you. Maybe they just need something from you. Maybe they just want to like communicate with you. Again, the communication is so that's the crux of this film. So he does that. And that seems kind of creepy too, with little creepy Misha Barton puking mm-hmm. her guts out mm-hmm. in his little tent. But it becomes this thing. Well, like, well, let's see what I can do with this. If I go to where they want me to go and listen to this, what can I do? And this is whole bunches of fucked up here. Yeah. They go to the funeral of this little girl that just recently passed, probably within the last week, this sick girl, and is revealed. Another great moment is when she grabs him under the thing. Again, he's still scared. He's timid by these moments. He doesn't want to bring in the ghosts. Because they look so horrifying. They even drive past that that cemetery at that point, and he's just like, looks the other way because he probably saw like 15 of them. Mm-hmm. But when she hands him the tape, and then he takes it to the dad and says, Kara wanted you, Kara, Kara, Kira wanted you to to see this. And then just kind of leaves. And there's the TV show, Matt. It's done. It's uh, Malcolm Crow and Cole Sear going place to place and solving all the ghostly problems. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. I'm on board. Let's do one an episode. You know what I yep. mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just you listen. It's freaky at points, and then you like solve them with help them solve their problems. It's like an interesting like kung fu, <laughs> <laughs> kung fu with ghosts. Yeah, very good. You're right. It is. They could do David Carradine episode one day. Didn't he kill himself? And <laughs> but mm-hmm. he did. Oh no, no, he didn't kill himself. He audio audio erotic asphyxiation himself. Yeah, unintentionally killed himself. Mm. We'll talk about that another day, but. Uh, <laughs> There's all these elements in here and uh, to play out with how you can communicate with the dead and help them in this weird state. I imagine all these ghosts, Malcolm included, are in this weird purgatory state. Something's unsolved. Something's unspoken about. And if that can get figured out, they can go on to the next stage, whichever after. And I like that they don't call it heaven. You know what I mean? It's nondescript. And maybe that's why the film was so successful because it doesn't cater to one religion or the other. Mm -hmm. But this is messed up. Oh, my God. This mother uh, Munchausen by proxy that is intentionally keeping her daughter sick so she can get off on it. Uh, those kind of things, like, really creak me the fuck out. Yeah, man. Because the kid is just so innocent. Mm-hmm. No, somehow we've I'm, taken. I'm feeling better, Mama. Uh-huh. And don't make fun of my cooking, that it tastes funny. Ooh. Oh, God. <laughs> so now we've taken what's horror and turned it into tragedy. Like that. So we're talking about five minutes before Misha Barton's hand grabbing Coles, and that's a big jump scare. And that whole bit's hard to watch. And then you turn it on its head to where this really awful event is unfolding with puppets. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's off-putting, too. All kinds of... My first thought was, oh, my God, it's going to be some like terrible molestation 
I guess this is better. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oof, yeah. A twinge better, it, but just as awful. Tough watch. Mm-hmm. And when they confront her, what's the mom wearing? Mm-hmm. Red. Mm-hmm. Just boom. Death. Symbol of death. And when they confront her, they're like, you are keeping her sick. Is that woman going to prison? <laughs> you know, an unbreakable when that mom steals the jewelry. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just realized right now when you said that they're very similar in structure, aren't they? Mm-hmm. That might be worth a revisitation on that same character, huh? Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, she's wearing red. Um, who wears red to that kind of a thing anyway? Yeah, everyone else is wearing black, black, so she sticks out, but like, so she doesn't feel like guilty. Oh, like, and then they just look at her and they're like, you were keeping her sick. And like, you're going to prison, lady. <laughs> you're doing time. This is all over. But they, he helped put that ghost at rest now, you know, that unsolved mystery. Like, where's Robert Stack? Cue the music. Like, now we can put that cold case file to, to rest now. He has a gift that can actually do some good, which is kind of the other interesting thing, too. So before he allows these people their eternal resting place, he has to help them solve a problem. And that's, I need the truth to be told about my mother or whatever it might be. Grandma said this about the brooch, you know, whatever it might mm-hmm. be. Is the golden with Willis to let him fix or save one kid to make up for the Donnie Wahlberg Absolutely. that he did? Yes. So my question then is, as this movie doesn't have an active antagonist, yeah, it has antagonistic elements. The supernatural world, yeah. Who's the primary protagonist in this film? Is this? Whose movie is this? Well, you know, Bruce Willis has his name above the title, so I almost want to give it to him. But I said earlier, I think this is Cole's film. I mean, he's the one with the gift, the shining, as you will, this ability to connect with this world and what good he can do from it. He's not only going to fix other people's lives, the lives, uh, his relationship with his mother, but he's going to fix this man's life as well. Because this guy can't stop working endlessly until this is due right. And then he can go put this to bed, too the stuff with his wife. It's really well put together. Uh, okay, we're getting to my favorite moments of the movie, Matt. So we solved the ghost problem. That woman's going to prison probably for a really long time for killing her daughter. Oh, pine saw. Jesus. Oh, Jesus yeah, is that, right. That soup probably tasted terrible. Yeah. Uh, Cole finally embracing, like opening up a little bit. He has this moment in the play and it's kind of like a cute little moment, but like, He's kind of being accepted. And like that's I think that's big for him too, for being weird and an outcast. He's finally getting this moment like in the spotlight. But mom missed the play, which is just so well reflected in the story he's about to tell here. So what I love about Shyamalan, when he's on, he's great. When he's off, he's about as bad as he's like at wood level <laughs> of filmmaking. But when he's able to put this moment together, and it's a ghost movie at the end of the day, but it really turns into this, like, let's fix this relationship between mother and son. Uh, and you get, you get this. You thought she didn't come to see you dance. She did. Mm. She hid in the back so you wouldn't see. She said you were like an angel. She said you came to the place where they buried her. Asked her a question. <laughs> 
she said, the answer is every day. Mm. What did you ask? <laughs> Do... Do I make... Hot take, Matt, and you know we, we we you and I you really like Unbreakable, and I do too. That's we go listen to that episode one. Go listen to episode one. How much we loved Unbreakable. I think this scene is M Night Shyamalan's finest hour. Like his best writing, the acting, like everything is just clicking on all cylinders. So to go from that, ten years later, he does this. Look, I don't know if you guys have heard about this article in the New York Times about honeybees vanishing. <laughs> well, apparently, honeybees are disappearing all over the country. What the hell? Yeah. This is a joke, but just a, a weird hypothesis. Maybe he, he had like some sort of traumatic brain injury and like like lost some ability to like write at an effective level the way he did back then because how are even is that even the same person to write that and then do that? I have no idea. But I'm not going to let it take away from this scene because it, this is masterful. This is this is great acting, great writing. I love the way it's shot. No music, which I'm a big fan of music, but it let, he lets that moment breathe in its emotion. And it looks like Cole's been waiting for a window to tell mom all this time. And he finally found a window in because mom missed his performance, just like grandma missed mom's performance. Oh, I love it. This, this is great. It's strange. Wahlberg can be bad. Mm-hmm. That's bad. Yeah. He can be really good as Dirk Diggler. Mm-hmm. The easy out on that is, well, the reason that that honeybee thing plays so poorly is because it's Wahlberg. But I want to counter that argument. Mm-hmm. It's Haley Joel Osment, man. He's like nine. I don't care how bad or good Mark Wahlberg is. He couldn't be any worse than a nine-year-old. Sure. <laughs> right? And how good can a nine-year-old really be? Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> so all of the sound answers those questions. Part of the issue is, well... Wahlberg's bad, but Wahlberg's bad in that because you're talking about something preposterous. Yeah. I care about honeybees, but in the context of that film and what that ends up paying off to be, it's stupid. Now, to do the second act reveal, the crisis moment, or maybe the third act, the crisis moment, forget to crisis, conflict, resolution... I guess this is maybe the crisis moment mm-hmm. and do it in a way that is in a car with no action and no dialogue and, and no um, tropes around you. It's just two people talking. And remember, it's a movie about ghosts. <laughs> you really are into something. And yeah. so I don't think your statement is wrong at all. Yeah. His finest film, we, his finest moment, we would have to look at that, but it absolutely yeah. would be, the one I would agree with as well right now. Mm-hmm. Um, traumatic <laughs> injury is a possibility. That's mostly a joke, but no, like no, I, something. <laughs> I wonder though. Okay, so if you take the three film hypothesis that we talked up and how hard it was to write those characters and get them to breathe flesh and blood on the screen, yeah, maybe there's just nothing left. 
and you don't have time to recharge your batteries because as soon as you get done, you're thinking about the next thing to produce and how to write it and what part am I going to star in it and who am I going to cast opposite me and you wear so many hats that you just burn yourself out. Now, was that the studio like forcing him in? Like, we need another M Night film coming out in the summer of '02. Like, why doesn't he take his time? Like, I can think of a lot of filmmakers, like you know, even like Nolan, or like even oh, like directors that will take their time and kind of you know really pick their projects before they like release the next one. You're know, like, why did he do so many so quickly? He could have really taken his. Let me step back. I've done, I done a lot in the last four years. Let me really take my time with this next idea. And there was no rush. Like, what was the rush? I, I don't I don't understand that part either. Good point. Yeah. Could have been this. Could have been this too. So Money. Yep. I Gosh, I hope not. It might have been. It could have been. Yeah. There's a lot of unforeseen mysteries in trying to figure him out of, like, where it all went bad. But Because the reason that I would say maybe there is an argument to be made for the brain injury piece Something really might have happened and it may have taken a while to recover or it might just be allow yourself some time to just rest up is when he did that, mm-hmm. we saw the start of the return. I didn't love the visit, but in the annals of the M. Night Shyamalan filmography, it was one of the, in the better half. Do you like the twist in that film where? Not really. I mean, it's, it, it's okay. Um, Cause I kind of, I kind of dug it again. It was, it wasn't like this twist where it was like so built up, but it was like a fairly unobvious twist. But when it happened, I was like, okay, I can see where this film's going. Like I, I went with it. Those aren't my grandparents. Catherine Hahn. It is, yeah, those aren't your grandparents. Like, and then you'd be like, what? Pretty crazy. <laughs> it is. And, and then that's found footage too. Yeah. So toying with the different mechanism of how you're going to do horror and suspense. So we go from Devil, mm-hmm. which you have very little involvement other than just the production element. Yeah. Then you go to found footage with, if I'm not mistaken, isn't that uh, Blumhouse? Yep. It helped with that? Mm-hmm. So that's a good partnership. It is, yeah. So if you go, if okay, I burnt all my bridges with Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy, but you get Jason Blum in your corner. Okay, now we're, we're mm-hmm. making some headway. And then maybe by the time that's done, because a couple years go by, and then it's split. And then immediately, Jesse, after split happens and the cycle of, of noise begins and the hype train on Shamila, and he's back, this and that, he immediately sits down. And I remember because I was following him pretty religiously on well, Twitter at the you time. You were more excited for, you never been more excited for a film. Two weeks into split, mm-hmm. and he's like, guys, I've already started the script for Glass. <laughs> yeah. And again, burned yourself out mm-hmm. too quick. Yeah, I it's a yeah it's a it's puzzling. It's such a journey. It's crazy. I love talking about them, the good and the bad, because we get to like kind of have these discussions about like where it went wrong, but like when it's so good, like these moments here, like I can really appreciate them when they happen. So on a scale of one to ten, ten being awesome, one being forget it. Okay, give me a number with where you are on him overall right now. Not right. like with this moment. Uh, a post glass. A four. I wanted glass to be more than it probably ever could be in my yeah. mind, but it's still, even in those expectations, it still kind of wasn't a good movie. So old is an interesting concept, but in Shyamalan's kind of hand fisted style, if that's that version's idea, aging on a beach, if that's the happening version of that film, that could be atrocious. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. If we follow the standard, we're in the second level of hell <laughs> and old will be three and there's still going to be one more. And I'm using 
the village lady in the water and the happening as the model for that. Now consider the village being glass. Okay. Old being lady in the water, which is barely tolerable. Well, by proxy, and then one more below. Ooh. But by proxy of where this is going, that next one is going to be the worst of the batch. <laughs> well, that's after Earth and Airbender, right? Is oh. after that. Yeah, that's ex- no, that's happening after Earth and Airbender. Oh man, we've got so maybe we've we're at the second level of hell, and we've got three more levels of hell to get to. Who knows though? It could be good. <laughs> yeah, we had a good time laughing and talking about what you and I might look like in the theater. For yeah, old. yeah, exactly. You know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what about? Okay, let's get to the ending. Okay. The twist ending to end all twist endings. It's so well talked about. How could you do that? It's been in rap songs. It's been in this. So Matt, now coming back to it for full circle, you kind of picked up on hints of it in that the anniversary scene there. Now when the moment happens and you get the final reveal with the wedding band falling and it's not on his hand, and then great editing here too to go back and remind you of things that you misperceived. I see people, sometimes people that don't know they're dead. And then him just kind of sitting there. Like when he goes to the restaurant, though, as much as you picked up on it, he doesn't pull that chair out. Like he just sits in it. So it's not like he's altering physics in the real world. Uh, did it still work for you when you saw the film? Was it still, did it have a at least a little bit of an impact? Cinematically, it's a great reveal. Yeah, it did. And I again, like I told you, I wasn't, oh, he's for sure dead. I just had the inkling like, yeah. Sure, yeah. And then but, to have it come through, mostly I had forgotten about my theories on that because I was so into the film. Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to decode what's going on here. I was just enjoying the ride. So yeah, it totally worked. You know what shot I really like in that montage is when they show him getting shot again and he's laying on the bed. But bef- the last time we saw him, he was like up against the wallpaper and it's like the same material as like his bedding. Mm. It's like a nice kind of like uh, just like transition there. But then we get to see the moment when he dies like paramedics be damned they weren't gonna save him he like dies like almost like 30 seconds after getting shot kind of kind of really tragic but then i really think about you know the his wife and what she had to go and the grief she's been through and the troubles to move on with is that wes bentley (laughs) yeah yeah uh she wants to but can't she's really she watches the wedding video every night for god's sakes uh like she's really stuck in the antidepressants, like even the antidepressant label is all red. I mean, like the red is everywhere once you go back and rewatch, which this film has good rewatchability. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we get the moment. I've fixed coal. I fixed that. I, I succeeded there. Now let me put this to peace. And this is, I think, another really kind of poignant moment where he tells his wife goodbye. And like, I can now say goodbye. I can now let go. You need to let go. And in the morning, now you can move on. Like that's... That's how he's ending his film. You know what I mean? Like this really kind of heartfelt like moment where like now these we can separate and because he was able to communicate the dead through his sleeping wife was able to like have this moment. I love that it happens when she's in a state of consciousness and not fully conscious Mm -hmm. too. I buy that Mm -hmm. as he just because what if you would have a dream like that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Which we've all had that dream. Not from your dead wife, but from a dead person in our (laughs) they've they've all showed up. Yeah. You know, I mean, like grandmas, they come and visit you from time to time. Yeah. So again, think about what we've talked about a lot. That's taking a very similar human situation that we all know and are familiar with, spinning it a little supernaturally and getting wild entertainment value out of it, but sentimentally. Yeah. 
But not off-putting, you know what I mean? No, like, not at all. Off-putting sentimentally will make me vomit. Like, this is enough. Like or, ordinary people? Oh, God. <laughs> Isn't that supernatural? Oh, fucking Mary Tyler Moore just <laughs> leaves that family behind. Ugh. Like, I'm done with you? Like, Ugh. what kind of mother is that? Yeah. Let Where's me, Tony Collette when we need her? Let me talk about the film's biggest miss, and it's not even the film's own fault. It's my own perceived fault into the film. So, I think, do you own this film? How did you watch this? I uh, rented it. Yeah, okay. So, I don't own this film. Yeah, you probably should. Shame on me. Yeah, you should own the, this uh, perceived trilogy of of the hot years of M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. When you watch it on TV, you get this tacked on, uh, you kind of get an extended ending, but it's actually a deleted scene on the theatrical release. And I watched it, and Shyamalan does a little introduction before, and he says this was the hardest cut he had to make in the film because he said it was the his favorite moment writing in the movie. Oh, wow. I have the audio clip. I'm going to play it. I actually think this ending is a little bit better than... Because after he says goodbye and disappears, it kind of smash cuts to the wedding video and then fades to white to black and then we get the credits. But then this moment goes back to the wedding video. This is great. I never thought that I could feel the things that I am feeling right now. I never thought, I never thought that I could stand up here in front of my friends and my family. <laughs> and, um, I'll tell you what's inside of me. But I can today. And a crow. I am in love. In love I am. So after he disappears, nice. after he disappears, it pans around to her watching the video. She's still asleep, and then it's him on there with the mic. This testimonial talking to the wedding about how he feels and everything, but I think it's just it's so it's so artistic in the way it's presented. But th- you get the Dr. Seuss thing: "I'm in love, in love I am." You get that return from the very beginning. Like I, it's it's such a hard cut, and I and watch the footage of him saying. I had to do it. It was and it was scored too. You heard the music, so it was a last minute cut that they said just trim it up a little bit more. Oh man, that's it's that's the cherry on top of this film for me is that's a good moment. That's a like a that's a like a really poignant moment for him. And he says he's like he kind of says goodbye twice, but at that time I'm just like, ah, do it twice. I don't care. <laughs> if it's that good, say goodbye fifteen times. Oh, goodness. But if you watch it on TV, they sometimes put it in the film and you actually get to see it. So oh, okay. Um, before we kind of wrap this up, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about a few things here. Um, the clothing, I mean, David Dunn is adorned in the clothing that he wore on the day of his death. So he does wear the sweater and he popped the sweater on, but he's wearing the same polo slacks the whole time through. So there's, that's one clue as to, were you paying attention closely? So, uh, so this was interesting. So David Vogel, he was president of Walt Disney Corporation at the time. He read Shyamalan's spec script, loved it so much, and he was the one that actually bought it. And then he got fired from the company. So he had nothing to do with the movie, but because he was such a champion of this, he actually helped kind of get this before that he got let go. 
So uh, they sold it to Spyglass. Like, what the hell happened to Spyglass? They're, I don't see them nearly as much as I used to. Underdog. But Disney retained 12.5% of the box office receipts. So pretty good, huh? Uh, so this cask, as you all know, is all about uh, cash. It's all about money. So the six cents, uh, $40 million budget, $672 oh. million dollar gross. Holy smokes. It was the second biggest film of 99 behind The Phantom Menace, which, you know, has the fanboy craze to it, but at a fraction of the budget of what that film cost. 640, what'd you say? 40 million budget, 672 million, yeah. Holy Lord. So again, the curse of M. Night. Let's talk Orson Welles one more time. Like, to hit it that out of the park on your, like, your first, I call it his first go. Like, those other films, I've never even seen them, but they came before. Mm Mm-hmm huge like how could you even fathom that much success that quickly and then on top of that nominated for best picture best director best screenplay supporting actor supporting actress for uh osman and colette and best editing didn't win anything you know what i mean but like the fact that you know a genre film we've talked about this before it's happened with the exorcist science of lambs get out uh but that's kind of it like genre horror suspense thriller to Get that many big nominations too. Picture, I think American Beauty was the winner that year. And I could make a case. I was like, I was like, they should have won some of these awards. Maybe not all of them, but they should have been in consideration for a few of them. Did Kevin? Yeah, Kevin Spacey took on Best Actor that year too. Mm-hmm. Oh. You, you could make the case uh, that uh, Osman probably could have gotten Best act, Actor instead of supporting. Mm. If yeah. it truly is kind of, as we said, his film, but crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. I remember because that was the time when I used to watch the Oscars, like all like, and I, I remember him sitting there and he was this little boy in the stands and like, uh, like, and, and they didn't win, but everyone was just really happy to be there. And I was like, this sixth sense. I was like, it got nominated for all these things. That's crazy. So the biggest horror film ever unadjusted for inflation when it comes out and nominated for all these Oscars, like, oh my God, you're if okay. If, you, if success isn't getting you now, your ego is just exploding at this point. Here's the Orson Welles curse. You know what I mean? Citizen Kane, everyone's calling it like the greatest thing they'd ever seen when that, that movie, when that came out. And what are you going to follow that up with a film? We actually really like unbreakable, but no one went to see it. <laughs> That's another departure, right? Yep. So the magnificent Ambersons follows up Citizen Kane. So I think our score is six, four now. Ooh. It was close. It was close. So we're over 10, I think. Yeah. That's not a great movie. It's not terrible, but that's not a great movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's in contention for the flight question, but only because it's on our mind from what we wanted to talk about today. Sure. Right. Unbreakable, arguably, and I do agree that that scene is maybe the best scene he's ever written. Strong, maybe. I don't have them all in front of my mind here, but yeah. yeah, it's very... Very likely statement. Unbreakable is a better film. But we get to the terrible marketing around that. You know, you say the trailer, and I agree, the trailer looks like some supernatural monster thing. Mm -hmm. If The Sixth Sense had just come out and that trailer was the next fresh thing that people were going to see from him, wouldn't it sort of behoove you to move to a spectral or ghostly state instead of larger beastie monstery thing. He must, he had to have had it or yeah, 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 it could have, you know, in a weird way, he almost catfished himself because that trailer sucks. Oh, it's terrible. 
the train's a big deal in that series, mm-hmm. but it's not that big a deal. The train is, the train's almost the MacGuffin in that series. Well, the mystery of that trailer is like, okay, if this guy survived this horrendous activity, like, why is he still alive? And they make it sound like it's like some like alien or like yep. supernatural thing. And yep. it's no, like this guy's just like, he's just built different. He's a superhero. But how could you sell a film? And this is also the the state of cinema at that time. If that we talked about that in Ep- go listen to episode one, everybody. Mm-hmm. Unbreakable comes out now. I think it's a huge hit because it's it subverts a genre that we're kind of tired with already. Mm-hmm. But how do you subvert a subgenre when we're not even used to it yet? X-Men hasn't even come out. You know what I mean? So like we're not even there. It's way ahead of its time. So if Rosebud mm-hmm. is the beginning of all things. Well, Rosebud is I see dead people. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the Rosebud moment yeah. personified in Shemilan is in the meeting with the studio executives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the ending? Mm-hmm. What do you mean what's the ending? Well, how are you going to Shemilan us? And this poor man, to his great success in the sixth sense, I'm about 100% sure that he didn't start down this path where every movie he makes, he's going to come up with the next best, I didn't see it coming, how is that possible mm-hmm. ending? Because yeah. you can't do that all the time. You can do it sometimes. Not every film. And you don't. I don't want that every time, too. I don't either. Sometimes it's okay just to let it play out with natural cause and effect, not ha-ha got you. And that that's a terrible, I shouldn't say ha-ha got you. Well, the other thing, too, I thought... Didn't he, see it coming. I think you don't he, need it. I think he was able to get Unbreakable greenlit as well because of... The success of this film, but also, like, I can get Willis and Samuel Jackson in the same movie. It'll help get this film across the finish line. Because uh, that's because that's such a harder sell of a film, you know what I mean? Like, if this is, I think, a little bit more higher concept than what Unbreakable offers because of the time of when it came out. So, it's star power. It's his star power at that time that's able to get that film made. And then when people saw it, they were just like, ah, this wasn't the ghost film I thought it was going to be. I pass it off. And then no one went to see it. But what's in there is subtle brilliance. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? <laughs> it's, it's a master in total charge of his entire craft. Yeah. So, oh, it's just, uh, I, I hate it. I just, I hate how good it was and I hate how awful it's been. You know what I mean? And I can't think of another director that's done that to me. Started off like that and left you so high and dry. Ramy a little bit. No, not even him. Like, like it's by the when when Ramy hits for love of the game. Are you not like, hey man, come on, what are you doing? No, because like the the, the him in the three, and then what he's going to do with the Spider Man stuff is nothing short of remarkable. Like, so that's more of just like a misstep among a plethora yeah, of greatness. He's had more just sidesteps than like colossal misses that Shyamalan has. I, I really can't think, like, even Hitchcock, as you said, like, you said Wells is more, or uh, uh, Shyamalan's more Wells than Hitchcock, because, like, Hitchcock's missteps are, like, like I said, Marnie, or, yeah. like, just, and, like, at the end of the day, like, those kind of aren't the worst films either, you know what I mean? For all the things that need, Marnie isn't, is, and is, and isn't, mm-hmm. It's at least an attempt at the first sexual thriller that we'd really ever seen. And if anyone's going to push boundaries, it's going to be Hitchcock. So, yeah. Oh, man. It's so perplexing. Every time he comes up, we just get... We get all in the weeds with it. Yeah. Trying to figure it out. And you know what it is? Hmm. It's 
a backhanded compliment to try to figure this out so that we can send the message and smoke signals or in the bottle to him to say, hey, if just don't do this. Well, that's, that's the thing. I don't wish ill will on literally no, anybody. Like, not. I, I'm not that type of person. Like, I literally want him, when he has a new film coming out, I, I'm like, I hope this reaches the heights of your best successes because I want it to be good. Because when you are good, you blow my mind. You know what I mean? So I want that feeling again. Jesse doesn't even wish ill will on Clive Owen. Uh, <laughs> wow. No, not even him. Okay. He didn't get to play Bond. It's, it's, it's his own miss at the end of the day. Hey, you know what? Come up and says a bitch. Yeah, it, it is. So. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. We don't wish ill will on anyone. Well, you don't. I do. Mm-hmm. No, I don't really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just what could have been what never was and is what? occasionally teased out. Yeah, sure. Oh. Let me ask you this, and then we'll get into some okay. final questions. You think we're ever going to talk about M. Night Shyamalan ever again? I imagine we'll probably hit it before the year ends, because I know we're going to do old. So. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite tasting note of The Sixth Sense? Uh, I think the tent scene is pretty terrifying. Um, the the clothespins pulling apart, yeah. Yeah, so that might be it. Uh, I'm with you though. The discussion between Tony Collette and Haley Jawsman in the car is <sighs> impeccable. Um, so I guess I have two. Yeah, it's mine. It's it's one of I think the genre's best scenes, right up there with like The Exorcist's best moments, The Shining's best moments. Like The Sixth Sense, I think gets to stand alone with that moment. Just specifically is breaking down the genre's barriers of just being spook films and really getting to the heart of human emotions. And, man, they kill it. Those two are so good in that scene. I, I can't even understate that enough. Like, I, oh, when we played the clip, I had to look down a little bit. Uh-huh. It gets me a little bit. There's a magic to where you, we're not even watching it. That's just the audio. Mm-hmm. And I'm fighting it back a little bit, too. Yeah. Both of those two are just in the space of those characters, and that is truly a special moment. What's the... Oh, my God! Moment of the sixth sense. The puppets. Really? That off puts you like... Bothers me. Yes, it's not... I don't have a thing against puppets. I just grew up at a time when that was a way (laughs) that every after school special was kids explaining some terrible molestation through puppets and (laughs) the school counselor and fuck, I was like, oh, I can't do... And and I'm not, not trying to be unsympathetic. I'm not a victim. Yeah. I just... That... Really, and not a bad way. Well, the context of just even spun just, me out. Well, the context of that puppet scene is not great either. No, no, <laughs> so, yeah, it's almost a relief. But yeah, the puppets. Mine's the Donnie Wahlberg at the beginning. Like yeah. if, like if Shyamalan's intention, I think he did this in Unbreakable and this film, is to hit you in the face right away with like a crazy moment. Whether it's the train crash or this, he succeeds in spades. Like this is such a great way to show the film and Wahlberg is so creepy. Like oh, you failed me. Like here's this naked guy almost like this. And you, last time you saw him was a child here. He has grown up this pent up revenge that mm. this kid's been building up. And now he decides to let it out on the night of your greatest achievement. Horrible. Yeah. Is this film, is that moment more troubling in the good way? Like effective filmmaking way than the alien on the TV? Oh God. Which one do you get? One. What are you going to choose? I have to choose Alien on the TV because yeah. that was that was a life changing moment for me. Yeah, that was when I was like, "Hey, that bothered me," but I kind of liked how it made me. It was like a roller coaster, mm. and I was like, "I need to pursue more of that. I need to go download that route." And it's taken me on some crazy places. That train's got off on some crazy stops, but that was 
Yeah, that, I never saw that coming. I didn't know what a jump scare was before that. And I was looking. I was like, where is it? I don't see the alien behind the garage. And then it, I was like, <gasps> I, I felt like I was so close that into the TV, like Joaquin Phoenix. And when it happened, I was like, I don't trust this director anymore. I don't know what he's capable of doing in the next 40 minutes of this movie. So, yeah, that's the one for me. Good. Who's the master distiller on The Sixth Sense? <sighs> Few to choose from. Yeah. Uh, let's try to not both go at the same way. Sure, here. yeah, go ahead. So I'll take Haley Joel Osment, leaving some pretty ripe fruit on the vine for you otherwise. Uh, kids and film can be no, it can really be. distracting and awful, and this is really fantastic and not distracting. Totally germane to the plot. No, to me, kids can kill movies. If you don't cast the right kid in the right thing, and I love how Shyamalan said, I, I literally wrote a character that I thought was unplayable. Mm-hmm. He's even setting himself up, self up for failure. Yeah. But he casted it perfectly. You know what I mean? Like he just, he found the right kid and he read his dialogue exactly how he wanted him to do it. Great performance. Yeah. He should have won. Like I think Michael Caine won that year for, and I love Michael Caine. But he'd already won an Oscar before. Give it to the kid. What did he win that year for? I can't even remember. But huh. a film we obviously don't talk about. Like, we talk about this. We remember these landmark moments that happened. Give it to him because he deserved it. Yeah. I'm going to give it to M. Night. Uh, it was yeah. really... I last time I had seen this was probably about five or six years ago. And I just... I really locked into, like, his perspective while watching it this time. I was like, man, this guy was just... He was in the zone here, and there's, like, nothing that could stop him from getting his vision to the finish line. A masterful directing and writing job. And he doesn't have to juggle producing, because, like I said, he has no money to, like, loft at this production yet. Not until this becomes the biggest grossing horror film of all time. (laughs) As much as Unbreakable was a really important film and where I came to what I believe worked and didn't work in story... I think this screenwriting wise deserves equal credit because what I always found the most compelling or intoxicating piece of screenwriting was being the person that handled all the puppet strings and knew why everyone did what everyone did in a way that entertained people being so sovereign over the story. Well, that's Cameron last week. Yeah. And this is it this week. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think he's a really good choice. There's two other ones, obviously, which would be Colette and Willis, but um, not today. I mean, uh, yeah, Colette and Willis. How are you going to rate and grade the sixth sense? We have rock cut, well, call single barrel and top shelf. Where are you lining up for this one? It's top shelf. Uh, 50 greatest. I don't know where, but 50 greatest. It made AFI when they redid their top 100 10 years ago. Uh, it made the list. So, sure. Yeah. Uh, it's not in that hallowed top 15 that is ever evolving, but this was equally enjoyable and honest. Mm-hmm. This sixth watch as it has been the prior five. Uh, I used to do this film in my film class. Sure, yeah. We stopped doing it because it really kind of started to spin the kids out and um, th- in a good way. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But uh, yes, it's a great film that um, I don't own it as a, True, 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 true. Oh, maybe uh, you got a Christmas present coming your way. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. I have like this old, like, I still have it on DVD. Like, I haven't even upgraded to like a Blu-ray or a 4K. I don't know what the hell's wrong with me, but I usually do that with most films. So, yeah. top shelf for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a, like, like I said, it had been a while since I'd seen it. 
But man, it really, it really spoke to me and it really uh, like affected me. And I was just like really digging all the performances and the direction. It was just great. The music, everything was just firing on all cylinders to the point where I was like, and Unbreakable, I think is still my favorite of his films, much like yours. But there was a moment I was watching. I was like, shit. I was like, this film it gives it a serious run for its money at being number one. Like that, everything I love about him as a director is present here. This is so remarkable. Like those two, the, the, that the Tony Collette Cole moment at, in the car. And then you follow that up with the twist of twists. Like that's a one, two punch, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, th- those are going to be my, and unbreakable has the same thing. Unbreakable. I love the moment unbreakable when he chokeholds the guy defeats him like i love the music how it spins it out and then you get that twist in that movie too so he was into something at that point but it's top shelf this is i know this film has its detractors and it hasn't maybe aged well for some critics and i think because those moments the icy dead people the twist is so overblown in pop culture that it's a bit overplayed not the film's fault i don't think it's the film's fault i think it's still a, a pretty terrific piece of filmmaking and Again, the biggest what if. Is he more Hitchcock? Is he more Orson Welles? I think he's a bit of both. So, For all of the troubling moments that you and I have expressed about what his career became, I just want to take a second and when he listens to this <laughs> and just say thank you. Absolutely, yeah. To him. For Yeah. From this, and I'm even going to give you The Village because there is a hell of a lot worse that we've covered on this at call rating than The Village. Sure, yeah. For a pretty amazing four-film run, that is your greatest success and your greatest curse at the same time. And I mean that with all due respect. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's move on to our nightcap. Okay, so The Sixth Sense arguably has top three greatest twists ever put to to the screen. So let's just have a discussion about it. Some some of your favorite twist endings. Uh, it almost seems like something, and we talk about screenwriting and story a lot on this show. It almost seems like something you shouldn't do. You know what I mean? To build up your story with all your beats and your characters and to have their arcs divulge into a moment where you literally pull the rug out from under your audience and say, no, this is actually the film you've been watching. It seems like a, a huge misstep for writers and directors, but sometimes it works, and sometimes it, it really helps see the film in a different light. So just give me some. What are some of your favorite twists of all time? Without, Let's not go into the details of the twist, but just what are some of the films about it? Kaiser Soze. Oh, God, yeah, there's the one, yeah. <laughs> Did you have that one, too? I don't have that one. Yeah, The Usual Suspects, watching Kevin Spacey figure out that uh, he doesn't have cerebral palsy and his leg has been a drope the whole time is awesome. The fact that he just catfished the whole movie. Yep. Yep. <laughs> of this bulletin board. Yeah, that's a good one. Yep. Any others? Any others come to Planet mind? of the Apes, the original. I'm actually, so HBO Max has all the Apes films right now and I'm actually re-going through them. Like, I think the thing that everyone for- forgets about the first Apes film screenwriter was Rod Serling. That yep. film is so Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Like that's such an episode on that show of they blew it up. God damn them all the hell. Great. Oh, that's a great ending. I'm going to give you one more and then I'm going to give you three. Okay. Chinatown. 
Uh, she was my sister and my mother. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, that's a little moment. My sister and my daughter. Oh, my God. My sister and my daughter. Faye Dunaway. Oh. For a film that you kind of really don't care much for, do I you? I don't, actually. Yeah. And if we're going to do twist ending, the fact that it sort of ends in the gunfight that it does down the road is a little surprising as well. But there's a lot. Those three always resonate pretty loudly with me. The Statue of Liberty. Great choices. Sister and daughter and Kaiser. I guess I have a a Chinatown one I can mention. I'll start with that one. Old Boy. Uh, The End of Old Boy. I I won't even go into it because... Which version do you like? Oh, the the original. Okay. And I've seen the Spike Lee with Josh Brolin and Elizabeth Olsen. It's it's just too similar. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. they didn't do enough to make it different. But I won't go into the details on why. It's fucked up. Like, oh, let's just leave it at that. But then I went to horror, of course. Sleepaway Camp. Mm -hmm. And I I tried to think of, of endings that literally made me go, oh my God. Like, endings that got me. And then the other one, and I hope we do this film one of these days uh, because we spoke very highly about this director before, Mr. James Wan. I remember sitting in my room watching the first Saw film, and I thought I had the film figured out, and I thought it was ending and wrapping up. And then when the film reveals what really happened in the room and how it wraps up, I had never been more, I think, more shocked watching a film ending. And I, I loved it. I loved the way that made me feel. I, I loved being duped is the feeling it was like well i I was lied to the whole time and i kind of liked it (laughs) heck yeah uh for whatever that series is and what it became torture porn and just disgusting that first film is i think very subtly brilliant in the way it portrays that and that's juan and lee winnell the writer and the actor in the movie yeah but when it happened and for those that haven't seen it i'm not going to spoil it for you because it is it is a great moment yeah yeah so um, couple more. Sure, yeah, why not? Fallen, Denzel. Good one, man. That's one I don't want to get into because fuck be, you, that, fuck you, Azazel. That'd be a good episode. That'd be a good film to do. Fallen. Would I don't be think good. a lot of people have seen that. I'd be good to turn them on to that. Uh numerically driven and often quoted on this, right? Obviously, seven. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, that. That, that's twisty, but in, in a twist that like makes the story make even more sense. You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. You almost see it coming, but it's so horrific the way it takes place that you're like, oh, God, like, why? <laughs> and then another, the last one I want to give you is a Gyllenhaal flick that I think was really unfairly panned. Mm. I didn't think it sucked at all. It was Life. Oh, yes. I talked about Life a few, uh, maybe earlier this year, but oh, yeah, that's a great ending. People are really down on that film. That's a solid. What's the matter with you all? We'll do that film one day. We won't spoil that one. That's a great ending. So there's six good ones. I'll give you three more. Okay. Uh, I think Prisoners. We did that on the show. Yeah. There's a lot of twists at the end of that thing of who the killer is. And then, yeah, the whistling. It's my, I I love endings that just end like, yeah, maybe they didn't find him and (laughs) buried in the thing. Oh, let me see. I think Psycho is a bit of a twist too. Yeah. Uh, and I just listened to a podcast that talked about Psycho and they were talking pretty down about the uh, psychologist that's really breaking down Norman Bates. And that's a scene that's just like, what the hell is happening in this movie? But like, for Too ni- much exposition or but what? But in 1960, you need that exposition. You hadn't seen a character like that before. You were used to the atomic monster. You weren't used to the human monster. You needed it explained to you. Were they equally fair with as rot with dialogue as that was, as how awesome the narrative is with Norman and the cell are as yeah. soon as that finishes? Yeah, they were, yeah. So, huh. 
Good. I love that I one. I think that's a good, that's, it's so, because tw- you kind of see it going that way, but you don't fully accept it until you see Norman in full mom's clothes and you're just like, Jesus. And you want to laugh, but it's equally horrifying. Right. Oh, okay. Um, one more. Let's see here. Twist. I'm not a benefactor of the uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back ending of the revelation of Luke's father, much like you are. But I still think like to be in that, if I could go back to any film moment and just watch people react to a moment, it's that film moment. I would love to see people just literally just see their mouths agape. That would be so cool. It was cool. The best part of that, Jesse, was after that finished, the conversations that me and my friends had in the playground for two long years. It was expectations for a film that could never meet them. No, never. Yeah. Teddy bears didn't help. No, a lot of things that didn't help in that. Oh, but Oh no, this was great. I loved it. You know, just revisiting Mr. M Knight and talking about this one. I forgot how much money it made. It made 99. It like it had the bank in 99. It was crazy. August release too. Whew. That's strange horror release, if you want to call this horror in August, that banked like well, it did on a guy that most people didn't know about. If it can come out in August and then write it out, it probably had September and October, October, too. Good so. point. I want to ask you one more quick ending question. Okay. Do you consider, you've brought it up, so I'll bring it up again, Marnie and or Vertigo twist endings? Marnie yeah. probably, right? I think Vertigo's a little twisty too. And that how he kind of figures it out and puts it all together, which yeah. is kind of insane the way he puts it out. And I love I like how she 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 dies and then how the film just ends, which is the knock against if if Shyamalan has any up against uh Hitchcock, it's is he's kind of figured out an ending a little bit better than Hitchcock because Hitchcock's endings the movie just ends. Sometimes they're terrible. <laughs> But I love Vertigo. suspicion. I love Vertigo's ending. It ends at the high point because there is that tacked on ending with him and Barbara Bel Geddes listening to like, oh, and he he went to prison and this get that out of here. You don't need that. You ended at the best moment. So that's not an instance of a bad Hitchcock ending. What's the title of the film? About Vertigo. Is he looking from a high point down with no balance issues? He figured it out. Yeah. He solved the problem. End the movie. Yeah. You're out. <laughs> Excellent. Well, this is a lot of fun. A capper on this cask. As we kind of prefaced last week, we're going to do probably another one next year. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to face them all off again. Like, can you imagine the sixth sense going up against like E.T.? Like, that's mm. going to be a great conversation. Like, and then we got to like put all the arguments in there, the cultural impact of a lot of these films. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Fun. Uh, and kind of think about what four films we want to add to that uh, tournament. Mm-hmm. There's a few big things we haven't talked about maybe some with dinosaurs maybe a little jurassic park in there mm. some big money makers in there so you know, what about we'll, robots as cars yeah oh man that'd be a good one maybe some earth's mightiest heroes their first time out would mm. be another good one maybe we're just putting the cast together right now but that's that's all sounds really good to me <laughs> yeah. but coming up next week we're going to return to some 2021 new releases and i think we got three films coming up in the in the chamber that we really want to talk about. And they've all, they're all coming out now around this time. So we're just going to dive right in. And, uh, back when we did, uh, we had an awful time doing, uh, DC films back in March. It was just a nightmare. The DC shit cask. Mm -hmm. We did suicide squad by way of David Ayer. We're going to do Suicide Squad again by way of Mr. James Gunn. So maybe it's going to fare a little bit differently this time. Maybe it could go south again. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but uh, we got to talk about it. We just got to figure out, did someone figure this out or is DC still just making shit? <laughs> James Gunn 
We'll I'm, see I'm if it's s- the Warner Brothers DC issue or if it's a character issue. Won't I'm we? so hopeful. Yeah. And then the, the next two entries, are, I think, are going to be a lot of fun, too. And then before you know it, it's spooky time. And then we're going to get in all the spooky season. So of all the upcoming horror films, and I'll give you two years, what's the one and you can't choose Halloween kills? Ugh. What's the one you're looking the most forward to? I got to tell you, mm. and it's not because, you know, we had kind of a run-in with Monkey Paw and that, that didn't go so well. Yeah. Candyman. I am looking forward to Candyman. I think they found a unique in to redo that in a remake sequel-esque version. That comes out late September. I'm really looking forward to that. I imagine we'll probably give that a crack. Yeah. I'm going to go out a little further. We've talked about it a lot. I'm super stoked to see this. I really want that Gosling Wolfman film. Oh, I hope that's good. Let's hope. Because we could go in a whole new direction with the Universal Monsters. Let's hope. Yeah. Excellent. Well, cheers to you. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers to you. I see dead people all the time. Uh, They're sitting in my closet right now. So why don't you help me grab your proton pack and we're going to go get them the hell out of there. I have a better idea. Instead of doing all that, all the dead people that you see in the summer... Stop following Pittsburgh Pirates baseball. Oh my man, shot harsh. <laughs> I accept it. I'll give you some Chargers Ooh. dings in the fall. Coming. Excellent. We'll see you all next time. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. For more Rye Smile content, go to Patreon.com/slash Rye Smile Films for exclusive bonus episodes plus feature-length watch-along commentaries on your favorite movies and TV show recap episodes covering the best from the small screen. For Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. The Sixth Sense is property of Buena Vista Pictures Distribution, Hollywood Pictures, Spyglass Entertainment, The Kennedy Marshall Company, and Barry Mendel Productions, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, Cheers. I miss you too. Why, Malcolm? What? What is it? What? Why did you leave me?